So good evening, everyone. This is Lilia from Heal Scotland with our second ever podcast. And um, today I've got a very, very old friend with me, all the way from Nova Scotia, Dr. Christopher Kidd, who's an anthropologist. And we're going to be discussing communities and pros and cons and how did we get where we are. Um, Chris was actually at school with my son and that's how we got to know each other and just over the years um, I've followed his journey to Africa and beyond and he's now in this spectacular Nova Scotia that I spent a month with him there um, and we discussed these uh, the topics and how we can really improve things for all of humanity um, every time we see each other. So hi Chris, how are you? Hi, hello. I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, so just to let you know, guys, there might be a little bit of a delay, um, obviously because of the distance and um, internet and these more rural places that I'm in. <laughs> so is Chris. So we'll just give each other a little bit of time to answer. So let's start off, Chris, with just, just tell us briefly your your journey and how you you know you came to do your PhD um, in such a fascinating subject? Um, yeah, I'll try and give you the abridged version, um, Lil. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a social anthropologist. Uh, anthropology really being the study, the study of, of communities, of societies, of culture. Um, I went to university, uh, Glasgow University, but before I went, I'd spent, I think, five or six months in, in Kenya. Um, I then started university and, and went back again, um, took a number of years out, um, and eventually, kind of, before we moved to Canada, I'd spent about, fifth, you know, 10 years over a 15-year period living, living in one particular community uh, in the southern um, part of Uganda, on the border with Rwanda and DRC. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess I went there because I was scared of Africa. Um, you know, coming from a small community in the west coast of Scotland, there wasn't a huge amount of of, of access to the wider world, and um, something about me decided to just get, deal with that fear of the wider world by just running straight into the middle of it. Um, I'm not quite sure where that came from, but it seems to have worked out. Um, so I, I particularly... You know, I, I, at the moment I work for an, an indigenous rights organisation. Before that, I was I was um, studying at Glasgow University, um, but but I spent the entire time working with particular communities that w that we in in the UK would refer to as pygmy communities, um, but hunter gatherer communities from Central Africa, uh, who traditionally have lived by hunting and gathering in forest environments, but increasingly now those landscapes are being um, attacked on two sides and on one side by um, infrastructure projects, dams, mining, um, uh, extractive industries, logging, um, oil palm or palm oil, sorry, as other people call it. Um, but then also by conservation interests, by organizations that are looking to protect um, the world's biodiversity. And oftentimes they do that by excluding the very people who have lived uh, sustainably in those environments for, for generations. So I was working with a particular community and lived with them. And the interesting part, the interesting part, I mean, we can have discussions maybe today about, you know, I mean, Africa is not just one culture. There are many kind of subsections within I mean, there are a number of 
cultures uh, within individual countries even. You know, Uganda has, has over 40 different languages, for example. Um, but there are then even differences just within generalised African culture, but then within that with hunter-gatherer indigenous culture. Um, and I think those stand in contrast to many of the values that, uh, that we hold in, in Scottish culture or Western culture or Northern culture, however you want to describe it. And I think that's a useful reflection on trying to understand what is it that's powerful about our culture that, that's helping us to sustain ourselves and, and what parts of our culture are destructive. Um, yeah. Yes. When, I mean, I, yes, exactly. But, um, you know, when I had the luxury of spending that month and a half with you guys in Kosoro, still one of my most phenomenal um, holidays and experiences ever. And, yeah, that was one thing that surprised me that almost – there's so many different languages, but of course, if people don't have cars and can't travel effortlessly back and forwards, you you only go as far as you can walk and back really in in one day. So that surprised me. But also, um, you look around and you we went to these markets which had thousands of people, and there yet there was not one single baby crying. And you know that I was like, wow, that's incredible. These kids are not crying. Why not? <laughs> But because they're attached, yeah? And then the other thing was, like, how did we get from this to sort of New York or London? And obviously being to visit the, 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 the deaf and blind school and, you know, seeing just the actual joy on people's faces when they have what we would refer to as nothing. Um, it really had me thinking. Um, because obviously living at your house, we had the volcanic water, which is obviously the best water you can drink. And we had the guy coming around in his bike with the fresh vegetables. And I was in nutrition heaven. So from my perspective, the food and the water was, um, was as pure as possibly most places you can get it on the planet. Um, but yet yeah, there's, you, and I suppose you don't need the same shelter in that, in that climate either really if you know you couldn't live like that in scotland people wouldn't be able to survive because of the damp and the rain and the wind absolutely absolutely um and you also wouldn't have the availability of foods through all the seasons necessarily but um i mean so i think i mean i i completely agree with you i mean in in terms of your there are certainly famines there are certainly problems with um with food security in Africa, but certainly there are other parts of Africa where food security is not necessarily the, the, the main problem, where people have uh, incredible access to fresh fruit and vegetables, and as you say, very, very, very good water source, although that's a huge water availability, is a huge problem, but the communities where we were living, um, that wasn't so much of the issue. Um, but it's an, interesting, it's an interesting part, I mean, I was trying to think, and we, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but I was trying to think of this before. I mean, if you if you say to somebody blue zones, right, they normally normally always always come back to you about you know plant based diets, um, about exercise, um, but very rarely do we talk about blue zones in the sense of you know family putting putting family ahead of all other concerns and of social engagement, people being socially active and integrated into communities, which I think were 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 strong findings from the Blue Zone studies, but it seems that we want to to focus on the nutritional aspects of it and the exercise aspects of it and somehow downplay the social part of it. Um, 
but particularly with my work, that's all my work has been about, has been um, supporting communities to be strong and resilient, partly because, you know, as a hunter-gatherer people, their, their communities have been, you know, they've been violently evicted from, the, from their homes. Um, their ability to maintain resilient communities has been violated by other people that are under attack uh, almost on a daily basis. So I've, you know, my, my work's focused on those parts of, of that, those blue zone studies that we think about how do we support communities to come back together and um, to communicate again with each other, to reconnect, to become resilient again. And I think that's interesting because I'm doing that with communities who have that as a core principle, but I think it's almost similar processes that we now need to be going through uh, in Nova Scotia and in, in, in Glasgow globally. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as you know, I've been into this, you know, like the health thing for decades and, you know, initially thought it was all about, you know, food and exercise. And then you realise, well, actually, no, that's a part of it for sure. And certainly it can really assist in your healing and get you back into balance. But the social aspect is really the thing that I'm really fascinated about now. And I think everybody I speak to certainly in the salon feels the same way. He used to come to Lockelphead because it was such a social hub. And Ardishig, you know, we had the choice of places to go. We had probably fun five nights of the week. Um, everybody went out the house and got together. And I think there's been obviously various reasons that, that that's broken down. But what price, it, you know, from a, a health perspective, are we paying for that? Because we have a pandemic on our hands. You know, we have, I'm not even going to go into the numbers again because I keep, it just makes me sad. But, you know, we are autoimmune disease and cancer and heart disease. We were all, it's all about cholesterol and take a drug for this. And clearly, if drugs fix their health issues, we wouldn't have any health issues because we've got more drugs than we can take a stick at. But, you know, that's, that's the breakdown of communities, the lack of knowing your neighbour. You know, we always talk about how Tarbert's got such a strong community. And I wondered if it's because we still know each other. We, you know, we... We know everyone, we know their families, we know their dad and probably their granddad and, and their kids. So when you really know people, um, you, you know, when you know your neighbour, you, maybe you'll talk about them, but you still really, if the push comes to shove, you're there for them. So how can we um, take what, we've, what you have and what you've experienced in, uh, in mm -hmm. Kosoro and all the other places you've been? And, use that wisdom and that obser these observations to really help this community that I'm creating. But the other thing that fascinated me when you were, you were telling me two things that I think are really fascinating for any mum or gran that's listening. Um, one, in the communities, a child of three will be getting 75% of their own nutrition. Now, you know, I know some kids that can't even make toast and they're leaving school. So that to me is quite a fascinating um, thing in terms of the helicopter parenting and you know doing a lot of stuff for our kids. So that was one thing. The other thing that you said that really mm -hmm. struck home was that in a community you have would have an average of thirty five caregivers. And I think again for all the mums listening, imagine sharing your parenting with another thirty four people. I think most people would really you know absolutely embrace that opportunity. You know, if one, if your primary caregiver is in a bad mood, you can just go away and find somebody who isn't. Whereas the way we live now, if your parent or parents or your carers are, you know, struggling, 
you ain't got anywhere else to go. Yes, and so I think I think the that has huge implications for mothers and fathers and those caregivers, and and, and you know it's huge implications for the for the children that are being raised with multiple caregivers. Um, so you're happy happy to go into to both of those things. I think I just wanted to make one comment on. You know, we've been sold a lie. We've been sold a, a dream, of, which was independence. We were told that we're, you know, independence was a virtue that we should all be striving towards, and we should all, you know, and it's a weakness to be dependent. Um, and I think what I've learned from working with with these communities is that actually we're striving towards interdependence. Um, and I See, definitely I want to come end. back to that. Maybe. maybe Interdependence. So being in, interdependent, upon, you know, relying upon other people, needing other people. That's not a weakness. That's a huge strength. And I, I think I would like to go back to that in a minute. Um, but, I, you know, with this capitalist mode of production and the distancing um, from the mode of production with consumption, you're just not connected in the same way that many of these communities are, where you have to be reliant upon the people around you because they are the ones who are going to help you provide the things that you cannot provide for yourself. Instead, we, we're, not, we're, we're not dependent. We can just go online individually onto Amazon. Amazon provides all that we need. Um, food, food, clothes, and entertainment. Um, but anyway, let, let, me, let me maybe come back to that one. But, but yeah, I'm, the interesting thing, there's, a, there's an anthropologist called Barry Hewlett in the US who's, who's, who's written a really great book called Intimate Fathers. Um, and it looks, it looks at... Central African hunter-gatherers, pygmy peoples called, called the Aka, a particular group called the Aka. Um, and what it does is it, it contrasts how we think the world should be and provides an alternative way of viewing the world. And that doesn't mean that they are better than us, we are better than them. It's a, it's a, it's a comparison or it's a, uh, it's a competition, sorry. Um, but what it does do is just open up a door that allows us to think maybe there's some other way that's possible. Maybe the way that we think is the right way is not the only way. Um, and as you say, these are little snippets, just little facts, um, but they're quite striking and that, that makes them quite powerful. But, but you know, what he does is he, he, he contrasts Western models of caregiving and child rearing with Aka. Um, child rearing and there's quite distinct differences so in the west we tend to think that the world is a dangerous place and our job as parents is to protect our children from that dangerous world um, and we do that by hiding them or oh, don't talk about that in front of the kids or you know um, no they're too young to, to really engage with these issues um, but then at the same time we try to actively harden them up so if a child's crying, it's like, no, 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 don't go over. They need to learn. They need to grow up, you know. Um, the ACA are very different. And, and it, it's not to say that women are not um, caregivers. They very much are. But the men are equal to equal caregivers to, to the women. Um, and they'll take, there's no differentiation between gender as to who is going to be the caregiver and who is going to be the disciplinarian. So fathers tend to be much more involved in reading the signs of the child and understanding when they're hungry, when they're happy, when they're sad, what do they need. There's a much more intimate relationship there than typically in the West. But there we would, we would assume that children in the ACA communities are coddled. Um, 
but yet, as you say, by the age of three, they're able to get 75% of the nutritional intake from roots, fruits, tubers, small, um, small mammals, small birds, um, and the, the other 25%, they're, sorry, they're really reliant upon the, the adults who go out and do net hunting um, for larger mammals. Um, but some of the ways in which we might understand how they get to a position where they are at the age of a very early age of infancy at the age of three are able to take care of themselves in ways children wouldn't be in the west you know if you look at how often children are, are have skin-to-skin -skin contact um, in terms of the daylight hours um, from the age of three months to four months you know in the west we typically see about 12 to 20 percent of the time children have skin-to-skin -skin contact or being held have that human relationship amongst the ACA, it's 99% of the of the time between you know up to the age of three to four months, but up to the age of seven to eight months, it's 75% of the time. Whereas you know in the West with seven to eight months, we're looking at 10%, less than 10% of the time, children are, are being held by by another human being. Um, in terms of crying, in terms of that hardening children up for the real world or coddling them. Um, you know, the ACA will respond, you know, within 10 seconds. 85% of the time, a child starts crying, they will respond to that child in 10 seconds. Um, you know, in the West, we deliberately don't respond. Um, we let them cry it out oftentimes. And as you, you know, as you highlighted on, I think my my numbers have been wrong. I double-checked them before we come on here. But they're looking at between 11 to 17 caregivers uh, uh, during the course of a day through daylight hours. And a caregiver is somebody that will be caring for that child for a substantial amount of time over the course of the day, not just picking them up and patting them in the head, but someone that will be holding them, um, feeding them, changing them. And it's normally not the mother. The mother may only spend 40% of her time with the child and may not be the first person to, to, to feed the child. You know, the first person to breastfeed the child may be a sister, an aunt, um, or somebody else within the community. So I guess the picture that we might want to build is of, of ACA children who get attention all the time. They are being held, they are being responded to, they participate in community or adult life all of the time. Um, and we might think they'll be soft, but actually what you find is they're very emotionally confident. They're able to, to nutritionally provide for themselves. At the age of three, those small children will then move out of that main camp and move into to what we might call teenage camps. Um, between <laughs> the ages of three and say fifteen, they go. They have a separate hunting camp beside the parents' camp, and they will still come back to the to the adults' camp and look for guidance, support when needed. But they will live as a community of of adolescents, and and they will learn about the world around them through active engagement. And they have that confidence because they know there's a whole community of people that they can come back to in times of need. And that's just something I don't think, um, through no fault of the parents alone, you know, but, but when you are raising in a nuclear family without that community support, um, that emotional support network um, is much, much more sparse than it might be in a community where you have, throughout your history, had 17, 20 caregivers. Um, so I think that's, as I say, I, I, I don't ever want to be suggesting that, well, these guys are better than these guys. That's just not the way it works because we're living in, in adapting to very different contexts. But these are, I think, quite important ways that we can look. Is really the way that we structured the world and our society really the right way 
to, to get the things that we want of out of our, our, our lives, you know? Yes, well, obviously, I mean, that, that's all fascinating. I, I just love hearing about that kind of stuff. It makes complete sense because how can you, we've maybe, at the, you know, with, through trying to make our kids secure and feel loved because of things that maybe we didn't feel were actually disabling them in terms of, you know, doing some, too much for them and not allowing them to realise how powerful and independent, interdependent like that that they can be. And certainly the mission I'm on to to really engage 5.2 million people who are in Scotland to really make just enough small changes, primarily up here, that we can turn our really, you know, worrying health picture around because we can. And part of that has got to be prevention and part of that is looking to other humans to see, right, okay, what have you guys been doing, you know, and what can we learn from there? Because, you know, I know when... Um, when I was with you in Kusoro, there was, there's a lot of people coming in to help. <laughs> and you're sort of, I remember thinking, you know, exactly what you, you said about um, the, you know, they're caring for their parents. They were, they, the, a lot of the older kids wouldn't go to school because they had to stay to look after their grandparents and maybe even their great-grandparents. And, you know, from the Western perspective, that was wrong. But I remember thinking, is that wrong? Is it wrong that you want to be at home looking after your family when they have looked after you? Because it's a kind of circle of life. And, you know, I think we need to be very careful that we are putting our, what we think is true, when we really make quite a mess of things, to be honest. And from a health perspective, you know, if these we can take on some of these um, ideas and behaviours so that our kids can be interdependent and secure, and have that big collective. I mean, I th you know, we're from Argyll and we have a big, strong community network still to this day, um, where we know there's about 10 people you could call that would just drop everything and, and help you. And that happened rather more by default, really, than design, but it's something I know that we all still really appreciate. And, you know, if, if, if your kids have that level of you know people on the other side of a phone i just think psychologically um it's bound to even without you realizing just make you feel a more confident human being so i think really i'm looking at you know going into schools with a kind of preteen empowerment program so teaching kids how to breathe how to respond to stress and and perhaps social media cyberbullying or whatever you call it because there's a lot of things that are completely out of our control now. Um, we need to teach them to cope. <laughs> there are idiots. There are things that will happen, and it's 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 given them that strength to change how to manage their emotions, and you know how to really fully realise you know how powerful that they are. Yeah, and make make that response at the community level and, and help them form their own communities. You know, the community could be geographical, as you say, addressing, but it could also be a community of 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 children of a particular age that can form their own communities. It doesn't need to be one all-encompassing community and supporting children to come together and, and form those communities of support. You know, I, I think you're right. I mean, I I am I know that I'm. I have achieved, you know, I've, I've taken the risks that I have in my life with the full knowledge that if it all goes wrong, I've still got you. You know, I've still got that community in Lachilpid. Um And it, as bad as it all might get, 
there's still always going to be a bed for me. There's still always going to be, someone's going to help me find a job to get by. You know, someone's going to loan me some money until I can get by. That, that I, I have that confidence and, and that allows me to, 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 to risk, to risk, to be, to be, to, to, to look for more than, than I might already have. And, and I think for people that, that don't have that, I mean, that's privilege. I mean, I, I completely get that. that, that that's that's when we talk about privilege. That's what we what we're talking about. And I don't take it lightly. But I I am feeling incredibly privileged to to have the community that I have behind me, beside me, accompanying me on on my personal journey, my professional journey. Um, and without it, I think it'd be much harder for me to 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 sound so brave and to sound so confident. Right. So um, massively grateful for that. I, I mean. I, I, I do want to touch on this dependency thing um, because it's, I mean, I, I'm interested, I mean, altruism, I, well, it comes, it, the reason I'm thinking of it is because it comes back to what you were saying. I did a PhD on, on development and I very much see development as being um, an evil, if you like. Um, it's a, a construct that's been created and when I mean development I mean that kind of international aid um, of development where money gets transferred from the north to communities in the south so they can become developed um, in the past there was the, the, the goal objective was civil, to civilize those communities now it's to develop those communities but the, the, the language has changed but the process is very similar um, and it's it's built on a, pr a premise of we're developed, they're not, so we need to give them what we have. It's a one-way transmission. Um, and it's altruism based on sympathy. Ah, we feel sorry for them, they're not like us. It's not altruism based on empathy. So I don't. I tend not to use altruism very often. And I, I talk about, it's a really complicated word, but I like it. it, it it's intersubjective mutuality and, and really what intersubjective mutuality means is the ability to see yourself in others, but then also the reciprocal process of allowing other people to see themselves in you. It's a two-way process. You have to open yourself up to, to, to allowing other people to invest themselves in you emotionally, but you have to then invest in other people emotionally. Um, and that interdependence is where the strength comes from. You know, and I, I'm trying to raise my children um, and continually pushing their boundaries so that they are investing in other relationships outside of me, whether it's their relatives, their neighbors, their friends, but then also inviting in my friends and, and my neighbors, and my family to invest in the kids, to, to allow them to to have responsibility in their lives it's not just my responsibility my wife's responsibility to raise the kids that means I don't always get to see how my kids are raised I have to be open to allowing that community to raise them mm -hmm. um, so this this thing of intersubjective mutuality it's to me it, it's it's what breeds interdependence and it's fundamentally about seeing yourselves in other people's and allowing them to see themselves in you. And that way, it's not about people who have something giving to people who have not got something. It's about investing in yourself because you see yourself in those other communities. They're not different. They're not other. They're not strange. They are us. We are all one humanity. We all exist together in the same global community. And if we don't, if we don't see that, if we continually treat these people as other, whether it's um, hunter-gatherers um, and whether it's just people in Africa or whether it's just the youth, 
if we don't see ourselves in them, if we try and position them as being other, we, like, we can't understand them. We're not going to create those dependencies, those communities, and I think that's where it starts to break down. Yes, exactly. That's beautifully put, actually, because it's, it's still a form of an agenda, isn't it? And, you know, Lynn McTaggart, McTaggart's latest research on the power of eight, which is really, I mean, ultimately it's group prayer, really, but it's people getting together, understanding that together we're stronger and that we are one. I mean, we all actually focus on it being better um, each other. Everybody benefits. If I send you love, my body gets love. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's crazily simple. And what she discovered was that, you know, people were out of the, the, I can't remember how many people were in the experiment, but 100% of them had profound life changes. And one of the, th the things that really stuck out, stuck out for me was that um, she said, get over yourself <laughs> and start, you know, being of service, which is in, in a lot of, you know, think about other people because you can become, we've, we've kind of swung from, um, you know, being a community to it's all about me. And we need to really understand that that can bring an awful lot of problems to us because um, when you're focusing in on, you know, the, the problems you perceive, i.e. the body doesn't look the way it's meant to or that, you know, you don't have the right job that you were meant to or you have a disease um, that has got a big story attached to it, then, you know, you can end up really, really quite self-absorbed and get sicker because of it. Whereas when you understand that, you know, just for today, <laughs> everything's pretty good for most of us. And if we could just stay in today, stay out the past, stay out the future and just enjoy the moment, um, then our health will be, you know, be really drastically improved for that. So, and it's funny, somebody was telling me that they, um, they were teaching in the schools that a lot of teenagers, they can't perceive a future. You know, if you're saying to them, work hard today because, you know, when you're 30, you'll be able to do, be a doctor. That's just so, such a, just a concept for them. They can't really, most of them, engage in that because the brain's just not designed to go there. <laughs> so it's interesting that we, um, what we've done in the West is we've planned out this you know, you go to school when you're five, you leave now when you're 18, and then you go to university, and then you get married, and you, have, you know, there's this kind of graph of what you're supposed to fit into. Um, whereas in the mm. communities, I mean, it's it's just the, it's just life, isn't it? There's not the same um, expectation, I suppose, and competition, would you say? Um. Yeah, and it, it depends. Um, I mean, very, very interesting. A lot of indigenous cultures um, understand time um, and non-indigenous cultures, but, but many of the world's cultures understand time. There's only three. There's yesterday, today and tomorrow. And yesterday is everything that happened before today. Tomorrow is everything that happens after today. And there's okay. no sense of how far down the line that is. It's, has it happened? Is it happening and will it happen in the future? There's no need to go, no need to discuss when it's going to happen. All, all you need to do is signify that it will, it's not happened yet. And that's, that's enough. Um, I, you know, there's weaknesses to that. It's, it's hard to create huge amounts of capital in the stock markets over a period of years. But, but if your objective is not to become wealthy, but actually just to become 
become happy. I think you're right to say that there is a, a need to kind of scale back our focus on long-term futures and that, that, that you know, we're working for a pension that's never going to come for us. And I think, I think we're starting to realise that that's, you know, as that breaks down, um, I think we are starting to realise that we need to rethink that. Um, yeah, the stress of time something. and the fear of death, you know, um, are, are two big things for people, you know. It's, um, and you think, well, time is really a construct of the mind um, and how we choose to perceive it and how, you know, we need to do certain things within certain time frames. That's what causes a lot of our stress. And that is um, mainly nowadays um, connected to productivity or our, our perception because of the economic structure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think competition is opposed to 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 meaningful interdependence. Um, you know, if you if you look at if you look at pygmy communities. Um, they have, you know, there was always this thought that, that, that the little nymphs running about the forest, that the little idealized, perfect societies, everybody's happy, nobody has any problems. And that doesn't come naturally. They've just developed societies. I mean, so that we use this word egalitarian um, to describe these communities. Egalitarian just means they're non-hierarchical. They are not positions of authority necessarily. Um, and that there is a, an equality between the sexes. People can, can have specialization. Women can obviously give birth and men can't. But there's not necessarily um, a greater or lesser value um, placed on any one of these specializations. Um, so within kind of egalitarian societies, the cultures have developed and worked hard to maintain that equality. Um, so they have what's called demand sharing. You know, if you come home with an antelope, and many of the older women who can't go out and hunt any longer will come up and plead and beg and cry at your door um, and, and demand a share of that wealth that you have accumulated in that moment. Um, and you will be socially obliged to give a, a section of that back. That way you cannot accumulate wealth. Um, you know, equally, you cannot, you cannot give yourself prestige. You cannot walk into that hunting camp and say, I am the best hunter here, because you will then be ridiculed by other members in the communities and brought back down. And the reason why I, you know, I always felt familiar with this concept because that's pubs in Glasgow to me. You know, we're all respected, right? I, I was, you know, I went to university. Um, somebody else had a job where there was a lot of money. Um, you know, we all had different specialisations. We're always all doing different things. The key thing was none of us could pretend we were any better than anybody else. We were all from the same community, right? We all grew up together. We knew each of our weaknesses and our faults and our. Uh, our mishaps throughout the course of our lives. So anytime somebody tried to pretend they were better than the rest, they were a prime target to be ridiculed, not to destroy somebody, but just to bring them back down. And that kind of leveling mechanism um, is not, you know, I, I, when I think of the group of friends that we had, we had people from, you know, 16 to 60, um, from millionaires to, to heroin addicts. That, the, only, the only way we could maintain 
that community was by having mechanisms that allowed us all to treat each other as equals. And that's not always just a natural state to be in. Sometimes your ego takes over and you want, to, you want everybody to acknowledge how great you are at something. But you have to have these mechanisms that bring you back down again and, and allow us all to see each other in you and for you to see yourselves in, in, in other people. So I think, I do think where we, where we promote competition, what we're actually doing um, in many instances is breaking down competition between people. Um, we're breaking down the, 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 the things that enable us to bind ourselves to each other uh, and form these communities. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. You're so right. It is a great leveller and, you know, that I don't think that'll ever go away and it's certainly in our community. <laughs> so let's just look at what I'm, the, the mission of uh, Heal Scotland and, you know, I believe that we have to get back to communities and, you know, I, I kind of realised that for a lot of people who are sick and overwhelmed, an hour a week with me letting go of fear just wasn't enough and that we really needed a place in nature where people can be, come and be supported and, you know, our understanding now of why we're damaged and why we might be the way we are is one thing, but what do we do about it? Um, and now with this uh, neuroscience and neuroplasticity, we, we understand you want to be a good pianist, play the piano, watch great piano players, hang around with great piano players, you know, and it's um, being free and being letting go of the past is the same thing. It's, a, it's just a simple process of practice, patience and repetition and struck with a strong desire. <laughs> and on the, the bad days, you know, that you'll still drag yourself out of bed and say, you know, that, you know, my uh, goal is worth putting myself through this, whatever you perceive that to be. Um, and this biodynamic farm um, in Comical Lane is just perfect for it. So we've got everything set up there. And then, of course, it's just the dynamics of the people that are coming who are clearly a bit vulnerable, but I think most human beings are these days. It's a big step and commitment to come in um, for the 12 weeks. You know, we're, we're looking at um, tolerance. I think that exactly what you were saying about the independence, interdependence. Um, it's very difficult sometimes to ask for help um, and to admit you need help. Um, and then to be vulnerable in front of people, you know, we are because we, we're British and we, we, we don't do that and we've got to stiff up our lip. But, you know, the understanding really is that, you know, the past really now is just a pile of memories that may or may not be accurate. So there really mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be any great purpose in holding on to it. And then so things like eating together and, and actually exactly like that, seeing that yourself and that other person and and just creating a very strong um, desire for each other to get the best out of the, the community. So that's my dream. <laughs> and also the power mm -hmm. of the collective, you know, and maybe you could just touch on that before we finish this, you know, we the, the rituals that, you know, that they, they use and, and simple things like drumming that we're understanding. Now that we've got the science for it, we can say, yes, it works because we've, we don't have, seem to have the wherewithal to know what makes us feel good these days. But, you know, in terms of repetitive rhythm and, and understanding of something that's a bit more intelligent, to say the least, than us, what, do, what would you say in the communities, um, what have you seen that seems to be 
powerful for hum, human humanity to become more kind and compassionate. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do think nature. Uh, um, I mean, the healing community is such an exciting prospect. I think nature has to be a core component of that because we are not separate from nature. We like to think that we are civilized and developed and we have left nature behind, you know, uh, and we haven't. We can never leave behind something we're, we're intimately connected to in a, by our, our, very brief, our very breath, you know. Um, so I think we have to, you know, helping people Ultimately, we want to see nature all around us. We want to, we, in fact, we don't want to see nature. We want to stop seeing nature, stop seeing culture, and just seeing the connections around us, whether they're to animate or, or non-animate objects. Um, we need to, we need to reconnect with our, with our environments. Um, but I think typically for people who have lost those connections, who find themselves, you know, in urban environments, getting them out to places of nature is, is a great way to remind people of that connection and um, so I think that's key and I think many of the communities I work with are intimately are in, interdependent or dependent upon uh, their natural world they still live in forests they still hunt and gather um, and they intimately have a connection to the to the to the world around them um, and they have people always laugh if you look at um, uh, Arctic and subarctic indigenous peoples in Canada or Russia, they may they may believe they certainly do believe themselves that rocks and the wind um, and rivers have are beings are sentient beings. And in one ways we can laugh at that because they don't have cells that form brains that have nervous systems. But on another level. It's true because those things affect us emotionally. They have an impact on us. And if we live in that world and are connected to that world, rocks can cause us to feel emotions, especially if we stub our toe on it, right? But, um, you know, the world around us affects us and, and, and we need to reconnect with those relationships rather than distancing ourselves from them and saying we're somehow different from them. Um, and I think the communities that I work with um, uh, I don't, I don't, not that there's a problem with it, I, I just don't want to come across as being um, happy um, or too kind of um, far out there, but they communicate on a daily basis with the world around them um, in ways that we don't, you know, we, we, can, we communicate through language, but they also communicate through emotions and thought um, with things that can't necessarily communicate back with them, and I think that's important. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, in terms in terms of being vulnerable, for me, being vulnerable is that part of a community, is part of that involvement in a community where you, you allow people to invest in you. You know, if I went to go to a community and say, um, I need help, I also have to, uh, have to allow those people to come in. I have to be honest with them as much as I have to be honest with myself. So it's about... Communities are about being vulnerable, as you say, because that allows people to come in and say, here's an opportunity for me to feel good about myself by helping these people around me that are vulnerable. And that then will make me more confident to then open myself up to be vulnerable um, when I need help. Um, these, these I, I always think to myself, these, I, I mean, it, it comes back to the point I've just made. Um, 
this is not things that we sort out. It's not like there's a, a, a good and a bad. It's more a kind of yin and a yang, if you like. There's a balance to be had. Um, we don't just fix the world and it remains fixed. We have to strive. We have to put in the effort. We have to work hard. And that's, that, I guess that's the lesson I've learned. Um, I, we want a quick fix. We want to say, here's a problem. Here's a solution. Let's move on. That's not how life works, you know. I've had periods, periods of un unhappiness and depression, and then periods of of sheer joy, and and I've then gone backwards. I've gone forwards. I've gone round in circles. It's for me. It's not about a linear progression from from nothing to everything. Um, it's it's really about continually creating resilient communities by creating resilient mechanisms that enable those communities, whether it's whether it's um, ridicule in a Glasgow pub or whether it's networks of support, we have to invest in that. We have to work, put in the effort. And when we do come together, um, and there has to be joy in that, there has to be moments of, of I mean, every indigenous community that I've come across, uh, certainly in the African context, music and collective music. This is a slightly off topic story, but anyway, I, I went to a, a big conference in, in Barcelona. And there was a foundation there that particularly worked with um, indigenous peoples to protect the environment. And um, we went along and it was, I think it was the last ever um, Catalonian or Basque guitar player. So there was a particular technique that was specific to Catalonia or to, to the Basque region. And he was the last person to ever have this technique. And he was brought along. Um, as part of kind of, I guess, you know, being, being set in Barcelona to also offer an indigenous culture from Barcelona. And I was there with hunter-gatherers, pygmy peoples um, from Central Africa, many of, you know, a couple of who it was their first time um, out of their countries. And I said, check this guy out. This guy's, that's some impressive skills. And they raised their nose at it. And they said, we are not impressed. And this guy was finger plucking like you've never seen finger plucking. He was spectacularly good at his technique, but the communities had no interest, no interest whatsoever, because he wasn't doing anything collectively. He was doing things for himself. He was showing his skills off as his skills and his skills alone. And if you look at any of the communities that I work with, they, they make music, they make rhythm, they make joy, but they do it collectively. Yes. And every single person in that community has, there's one particular form of music that they play in the river when they're fishing um, or when they're washing their clothes that involves slapping the water uh, in rhythm. The women have their roles, the men have their roles, but also you can have small children that don't, have, that don't know their role. So they uh -huh. just make a lot of splashing. Yes. And that's part of the music. They have an active yes. role and that role's valued. So I definitely think moments of joy, moments of collective music making um, is such an important part um, of any of any kind of resilient community. Yes, um, we're, we've actually got a, a guy um, from Gran Canaria joining us and he's big into music and humming and om. You know, obviously we understand that <clears throat> we use 100% of our vocal cords when we sing. Um, so we're singers who speak, <laughs> so we're designed to, right. um, but a lot of people will not use their voice in the West because they feel that they're not a good enough singer. 
you know so you're they're missing out on that opportunity which is, is a release and a cleanse um to actually sing yeah and i think you know the more you understand about the drumming and, and the kind of repetitive beats and and the dancing together and how that you know the collective energy because again it's all about doing things together really that's when we get the real power and um, we're going to be doing a lot of that at the community so i'm personally excited to experience it for 12 weeks myself you know and um, to see how i'm going to feel when i come out the other end and if we can really prove <clears throat> that these simple things which are all free basically apart from obviously your food which you pay for anyway um because we have this, this disease pandemic and because you know the nhs is bursting at the seams we have to take back some power and we have to prevent and we have to look at ways that if the system breaks down what do you do how do you look after yourself yourselves and we do that together i believe um so it's very exciting um you know to to get back to the community i think so many people have said oh my god i'd love to come you know i understand that in our culture the idea of taking 12 weeks off can seem like a long time but as we know in the grand scheme of healing yourself it's just it's nothing but it's a really good start and hopefully it'll be enough to get people engaged and excited mm -hmm. about the things that they can do in their communities just to to feel better and to bring their kids I, you know, I always say everyone bangs on about social media and the dangers and I'm thinking, well, there's got to be something a bit more interesting or fun for them to do. <laughs> we need to be a lot more creative about what we're doing. You know, we had a, the village hall over the road in our district a few weeks ago. We had a kiddies disco and then Nikki had the backing tapes out. The kids all got up to sing. We had some young pipers and we had just had a fantastic winter's dark afternoon. We just had the village hall and we got everybody together. And that's it, you know, in a nutshell there. The kids were having an absolute ball. The parents get some free time. They're getting their confidence. They're getting their, their community, you know. So I think the idea of saying, well, you need to drink carrot juice and, you know, stop going to the pub and do more exercise, go to the gym, you know, that's, that's not a solution because if it was, you know, we would all be fine by now. <laughs> We need to be looking at the, the things that people could actually get excited and interested in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's not enough of a solution. I mean, I, I, I there's clearly a role for for people to focus in on their own personal responsibilities. Or I don't mean that in a depreciative way. I mean, you know, people can focus in on the things that they have control over, and obviously, what they put in their mouth uh, and the the forms of exercise that they take are ways that where people can focus on the individual level, and that's usually important. Um, I also somebody went off, a friend of mine went off to to walk from the north of New Zealand down to the southern tip. I think it's it's uh, just under or just over three thousand kilometres. Wow! Um, and I just thought, imagine imagine that process. Imagine that just having that time in your life to just peel off those layers of that onion and just yeah. really get down to some very core functions. So I think all of these things are important, but, but as you say, and, and as, as I kind of maybe uh, rounding it back to where we started, if you look at the blue zones, exercise and nutrition is certainly key components of what makes some communities live 
for very long periods of time. But it's not the only things. And if you want that full answer, if you want that fuller picture, you have to bring in the family. You have to bring in the connectedness with, with the community around you. Um, and once we can kind of fit all those pieces together, um, and, and certainly my bias is that the community forms the, that, core, that core foundation. Once you have the community, once you have that network of support, you can then add in the exercise, you can add in the nutrition, that's fine. But you have to have that core foundation first. Um, so if we, can, if we can start off with that community and focus on that community, there's nothing that we cannot do as a collective group. Absolutely nothing. And I say that not because I believe in something that other people don't. The evidence is there. You know, we have done everything we have done in the past as a collective group. Um, and that's where our future lies. If we somehow think um, we can do it as individuals, we're very, very much missing how we have got to the place we have. So all the problems that we have created as a community is also the same communities that have come up with the solutions. So what we need to do is rather than, you know, just reintegrate or, or just focus on those steps that allow us identify the important parts, the things that bring us joy, that bring us connectedness, and put the effort and work into those parts. And the bits that bring us divisiveness um, or break down those connections, let's just forget about them. In terms of meditation, let that wash over you. We don't need to necessarily even resist them. We just need to let them flow past us and focus on the real things that bring us together. And if we can do that, the other bits will, 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 will handle themselves, you know? Well, maybe. Yes. That's, that's, yeah, I totally agree that it's um it's just fascinating and obviously I think it is you know, the experience that you have really, you know, from working with these um communities is invaluable to help us, I believe. As I think, you know, even talking about food scarcity and shortage, I think we now have the intelligence to really make sure that, you know, we, we have the things that we can <laughs> the skills, the fridges, the freezers to really um, make sure that nobody goes hungry. And we, you know, we've got skills we can bring to, um, to, com to communities and communities certainly have got um, things that we, we can learn. We have to learn from each other because we yeah. are actually all the same. <laughs> and we all need um, exactly the same things. So thank you so much for being my guest and giving us the, um, all the, the wisdom from the African communities. It's um, so, so interesting. And um, I will uh, see you in Nova Scotia really soon, I hope. Thanks for having me, Lowe. It's been a real honour to be, to be part of, of the work that you're doing in the community um, you're supporting and accompanying. Um, I like the word accompanying. You know, we we don't yeah. necessarily need leaders. We just need a lot of people that are willing to accompany other people. And I, I very much see that's what you're doing. You're you're accompanying. You know, um, a, a, an increasingly large community, and that's that's wonderful to watch. Um, and there is very much a bed always made up for you here, especially uh, my two toddlers. Um, need we need a living nanny, little. So uh, please come back <laughs> over whenever you've got the time. Always welcome. Uh, this is this is this is me expanding expanding the caregivers for my own children. I'm, I'm, I'm embracing people coming into the home and taking that on. Yeah, but thanks for having me. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, darling. Ciao, ciao.